Basically, the Orange Order is a fellowship of persons within the Protestant faith banded together to maintain that faith and to extend the principles of the Reformation and working out from that basis to maintain the liberties, civil and religious, which the Reformation gave us. When the brethren are met in their order so grand, what a beautiful sight for the sea. I was ordered to stand by a brother's command to receive the bright orange and blue. To receive the bright orange and blue. To receive the bright orange and blue. I was ordered to stand by a brother's command to receive the bright orange. The people hated all they get all terribly. Yes. And uh, the Catholic people wasn't so bad, but the Orange men, they were desperate. Yes. They were better as better could be. They were a spit in your face. I don't think there's any reason why it should be associated with violence, but undoubtedly violence has occurred many times uh, at uh, Orange processions. I, th I suppose the first and most, one of the famous riots was the Battle of Garva, which is commemorated in a song, which happened in County Derry away in 1813. And then you have the Battle of Dolly's Bray in 1849, when an Orange parade was attacked, returning from Castle Wellen, and eight people lost their lives. Just then two priests came up to us and to Mr. Spears did say Come turn your men the other road and never cross Holy Pray Be gone, be gone, you spapish dogs, you've barely time to pray Before we fling your carcasses right over Dolly's Bray Before we fling your carcasses right over Dolly's Bray Orangeism is a tolerant association. We honour all men and despite all that our enemies may say to the contrary, Orange men are tolerant, fair and generous towards those who are opposed to them, either in religion or politics. Orange men are Protestants, and liberty is the genius and the characteristic of Protestantism, just as bigotry, persecution and intolerance are the characteristics of popery. We willingly allow to those who differ from us the religious liberty and the civil liberty that we ourselves enjoy. Only we, of course, object to their making such use of their liberty as would deprive us of ours. They never did so without being made to smart for it, and so it shall be until they learn how to behave themselves. So you Protestant heroes on your night of sitting with loyalty drink to the milligans' fame, for they are the 
should have a sincere love and veneration for his heavenly Father, and humble and steadfast faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, believing in him as the only mediator between God and man. He should cultivate truth and justice, brotherly kindness and charity, devotion and piety. He should love, uphold and defend the Protestant religion, and sincerely desire and endeavor to propagate its doctrines and precepts. He should strenuously oppose the fatal errors and doctrines of the Church of Rome and scrupulously avoid countenancing by his presence or otherwise any act or ceremony of popish worship. A rope, a rope, a bay rope, a barney forth the cheese to choke him, a pint of lamb boil to ranch it down, and a big hot Far to roast him, and I was sick, very, very sick. Then I was lying dying, and the only thing that cured my head was to see him lying frying. The Orange Order, in its many manifestations, is a thing of great contradictions admirable in many of its precepts, vastly different in many of its practices. The trouble, as far as the outsider is concerned, is that it's so difficult for him to see the orange men as they see themselves. But even as they see themselves, even as they project their society in printer and public utterance, the orange men do not present a particularly attractive image to those outside their ranks. The excerpt from the laws and ordinances of the Orange Institution, which we've just heard, appears in a booklet entitled Why Orangeism? by, to give him the full credits listed on the title page, Brother, the Reverend Dr. M. W. Duar, M.A., Cambridge, Diploma in Theology, London, Late History Scholar and Prizeman, Blundell School, Tiverton, Late History Exhibitioner and Prizeman, Emmanuel College, Cambridge, Deputy Grand Chaplain, Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland, formerly Rector of Scarva, now Rector of Maharali and Anaclone, County Down, LOL 26A, Banbridge District. That booklet was first published in 1959. It was reprinted in 1965 and is still in circulation. It is a foreword by the late brother, the Right Reverend W.S. Kerr, D.D., formerly Bishop of Down and Dromore, Grand Chaplain of the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland. Dr. Kerr, like many others in the Order, was very conscious of the criticisms levelled against it. We Orange men are accustomed to misrepresentation and slanders. Bigotry is a familiar charge against us, and while we are pledged to defend the Reformed faith against encroachment or aggression, we are also bound to abstain from unkind words or actions against Roman Catholics. In fact, the Order is a powerful inculcation of tolerance, impressing on every member the duties of brotherly kindness and charity, and forbidding the injuring or upbraiding of any man on account of his religious opinions. The Reverend Brother Duar emphasizes the relevance of Orangism today. The errors and superstitions of Romanism are not less dangerous now than when our order was founded. 
three new false dogmas have been decreed in a century. This professed tolerance, combined with a remarkable intemperance towards the errors and superstitions of Romanism, may be a hangover of Ulster Protestant history. Patrick Buckland of the University of Liverpool in his book on Ulster Unionism is only one of a number of historians who have commented on this apparent hypocrisy. A melancholy Protestantism affected all aspects of life. Many 19th century travellers found the province too narrowly religious, Bibles in almost every hotel bedroom and too many churches, and suspected hypocrisy. Ulster Protestantism was distinguished by a narrow Puritanism, as all Protestants found common ground in a fervent anti-Catholicism. Tony Gray, in his book, The Orange Order, has much to say about what he calls the orange double-think. He quotes, for example, some of the orange men's loyal toasts, of which this is a composite version. To the glorious, pious and immortal memory of the great and good King William, who saved us from popery, slavery, priestcraft and knavery, brass money and wooden shoes, and whoever denies this toast may be slammed, crammed and jammed into the muzzle of the great gun of Athlone, and the gun fired into the Pope's belly, and the Pope into the devil's belly, and the devil into hell, and the door locked on the key forever in an orange man's pocket. And may we never lock a Protestant bay to kick the arse of a papist, and here's a fart for the Bishop of Cork. I tackled several leading orangemen about these savage and bloodthirsty toasts and asked whether, in fact, they were used today. Again, I encountered this curious double-think, which is such a feature of the movement. Sitting in his comfortable rectory, surrounded by books and with a civilised cup of coffee in his hand, a clergyman who also happens to be prominent in the Orange Order assured me that they were certainly used in some lodges, but... uh, purely in a jokey sort of way and to keep up an ancient tradition. Which again may be true for him and for the better educated and more liberal-minded members of the order. But I wonder if the grassroots rabble of the order in the Protestant slums regard these toasts in quite the same jokey light. Certainly they can't sound very funny to the Catholics who make up slightly more than one-third of the community in Northern Ireland. This double-think runs through the whole fabric of the Orange Order from top to bottom. The laws and ordinances of the Orange Institution specifically state that every Orangeman should abstain from all uncharitable words, actions or sentiments towards his Roman Catholic brethren. Yet the very people who rule the Orange Order will admit that nowadays, as in the past, the lodgers are allowed considerable freedom in their interpretation of these laws and ordinances, because to impose them too rigidly would be to risk destroying the driving force behind the movement, which is, of course, sectarianism. But sectarianism is not the word the orange man himself would use to describe the impetus behind the orange order. And Roman Catholics, who would see its religious zeal as directed against them, would be told they are mistaken. The Reverend W. Martin Smith... Grandmaster of the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland. I think that some Roman Catholics, because they've been brainwashed, have uh, an antagonism to it because they see the Orange Order as against them. Whereas in point of fact, years ago, just before the 12th, I prayed for Roman Catholics in the course of a service. Some members came to me afterwards and said, that was lovely, we have never heard that before. We were surprised actually coming from you. I said, why? Well, they said, we never thought that would have happened. I said, well, strange enough, I've been taught to do that for years. 
Now, in that context, I don't think that Roman Catholics have anything to fear from the Orange family. The fact of the matter is this, the heritage of the United Kingdom is based upon the very principles which we have espoused. And unfortunately, what so many folk are inclined to do, they're inclined to judge in a limited aspect of history. And they forget that certain extravagances in history are but signs and reflections of the time. But the principles unleashed in the Reformation, and which we would still maintain, uh, are open today and vital today. The Orange Order is, of course, a product of the sectarianism of the past. The campaign which included the Siege of Derry and the Battle of the Boyne was virtually the last of the wars of religion fought in Europe. By the time of the French Revolution, the Orange tradition had lost much of its meaning for upper and middle class Irish Protestants. Yet, as Professor Herowood Sr. of McGill University, Montreal, pointed out, it remained a living force among the peasants of Ulster, where the issues of the Boyne were still contested in various places where people assembled, such as taverns, cockfights and street corners. Incidents arising out of these encounters were part of the pattern of rural life in the 18th century and became serious only when the economic competition of the Catholic peasants and the relaxation of the penal code posed an apparent threat to the privileges of the Protestant peasants. This was first noticeable in the 1760s, when transitory agrarian secret societies like the Steel Boys protested that Catholic tenants were threatening their living standards by offering higher rents in bidding for leases. More serious were the Peep Day Boys, who appeared in the 1780s, when non-enforcement of the penal code made it possible for Catholics to acquire the arms of disbanded volunteers. As the possession of arms would obviously strengthen the position of Catholics, Protestant Peeper Day Boys raided Catholic homes in the early hours of the morning to search for arms. These acts of terror stimulated the growth of a Catholic defence organisation known as the Defenders, which evolved into a formal, federated secret society, providing the Catholics with a superior organisation. The Orange Society then stemmed from what was regarded as a threat to a position of ascendancy. Yet, a few years earlier, the Society of United Irishmen had also been founded in the North, also by Protestants, on a very different basis. Reform in the legislature, a communion of rights, and a union of power among Irishmen of every religious persuasion. Against their emphasis on the rights of man, liberty, fraternity, equality, the orange motto enshrined in ballads and later emblazoned on banners was Croppies Lie Down. In his book, The Ulster Crisis, A.T.Q. Stewart of Stanmillis College, Belfast, says of the Orange Society, To begin with, it was simply one more secret society whose members were frequently involved in agrarian outrage and its early history was unsavoury. Rabidly sectarian, it worked to divide the peasantry at the same time that the United Irishmen were striving to unite them. Encounters between rival groups occurred regularly in the 1770s and eventually the hostility generated by the Peepa Day Boys on the one side and the Defenders on the other culminated in what has been called the Battle of the Diamond. That's near Loch Gaul on the 21st of September 1795, in which the Defenders were routed and about 30 of their number killed, though some accounts put the figure as high as 48. At any rate, it was out of this sectarian fight that the Orange Society was born. At sweet lock all our sires met In conclave though but few 
For brave men will not slumber when danger is in view. We took the Bible for their guide and feared no wily foe. An Ulster's fertile soil may bise a hundred years ago. There, Blacker Sloan and Atkinson stood through unto the core, with Sinclair and Dan Winter too, and Verner evermore. These were the sires that led the van and did their valor show at the Battle of the Diamond Boys. A hundred years ago. There's much obscurity about the establishment of the first Orange Lodge and about the assignment of the first warrant to the Dian. But Jimmy Briars of the Boyne Tavern in Sandy Row, Belfast, has heard some of the local lore. I remember my father telling her on the occasion when they were founding the Orange Order, or at least when they were organising it into various lodges, that they all gathered at Dan Winters's cottage. That is cottage just outside Loch Gall in the county Armagh. Very convenient to turn it, just over the border from County Tyrone. Mm-hmm. They gathered there as delegates uh, to sign up and organise themselves into various lodges. Uh, what is known, each lodge got was known a warrant instructing them to be carry on as their lodge. Now, on this occasion, when they arrived at Dan Winters' cottage, they discovered there were no ink. In those days, it was a quill was used, not a pen as we know today, but a quill and ink. And uh, very few working men's cottages had ink, and quite a few of them could not write. However, some of the delegates were dispatched to the nearest manor house, I understand, to get ink and quills. In the meantime, the story goes that my ancestor went out into the fire run. Uh, got a quill of a fowl, of a fowl or a hen or something, sharpened it into a quill and made a slight incision in his wrist or somewhere and uh, signed for the Dian number one lodge in blood. One result of the establishment of the Orange Institution was that whereas before 1795 there had been little coordination or organisation among the Protestant vengeance groups in Armagh, they now set about intimidating their Catholic neighbours in an organised way. As Tony Gray puts it, The Orange Order, when it was organised, simply channelled a vast flow of fervent feeling which already existed into one enormous reservoir of partisan and religious ardour, or bigotry, according to how you view it. Prior to 1795, many attacks had been directed at Catholic weavers in the Loch Gaul area, with the object of driving them out. After the Battle of the Diamond, the Orange Boys, as they were then called, accomplished this with little resistance. The events were described 40 years later by James Christie, a Quaker and a magistrate, who in 1795 resided near that area. I first heard of the disturbances as wrecking, that is, loom-smashing. It commenced at Churchill between Portadown and Dungannon, and then it extended over nearly all the northern counties. After the Catholics were driven, many of them from their homes, I understood they went to Connaught, but the property which they left was transferred in most instances to Protestants. Christie was giving evidence before the Parliamentary Select Committee of the British House of Commons, which in 1835 inquired into the whole character and motivation of Orange societies. 
He estimated that several hundred Catholic families were driven out of Armagh in 1795. The Orange Order then was born out of violence. Its whole history is one of sectarian conflict, of faction fights, generally associated with July and August processions, of government proscriptions and bans, and disturbances arising out of them. We asked the Reverend Martin Smith if the connection with violent episodes of history was entirely a coincidence. I think that this is, again, a nice way of putting it for specific purposes. The Church of Rome, and for that matter we could say even the Christian Church, has been associated with violence from the very beginning. Crucifixion of Christ, the persecution of Christians, and of course the Crusades, blessed by Urban, and more latterly the blessing of Italian bombers to bomb defenceless Abyssinian people. Uh, we refute this implication, and propagandists, even in these last four years, have said that the Orange Order has been responsible for the violence, parades going into areas where they never hitherto went and so on. The facts are that they didn't do that, and when we have been involved in any sort of trouble, it's because of a context of republicanism seeking to pervert the law of the land, and we've got to remember that even when there was a ban on all sorts of parades, party procession acts, the last folk to challenge that were the Orange, and they finally challenged it under William Johnson of Ballykilbeg because everybody else was flaunting the law and nothing was being done about it. We asked Aiken McClellan, assistant keeper of the Ulster Folk Museum and secretary of the Loyal Orange Lodge of Research, why the Orange men have always been so concerned with marching. I th think an anthropologist would say this is a way of delineating your territory. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Orange men march to show that they are the masters of this particular area, and of course their opponents, uh, they object to this assertion, and therefore you have a riot. Mm -hmm. And the, the order was prescribed at certain times, the, and these uh, parades were forbidden as well at a couple he, of periods in the last century in particular. Yes, this is true. Uh, they were first banned in the mid-1820s, and this ban only lasted a few years. In fact, the Grand Lodge of Ireland dissolved, and then it was banned from about 1832 to 1845, and then parades were finally banned after Dolly's Bray, which I've already mentioned, in 1849. This was the Party Processions Act of 1850, which banned all party processions in Ireland. It's of interest that many of the orange parades which led to disturbances should have been to the estates of the landed gentry. For example, in the case of Dolly's Bray, as one ballad tells us, Lord Roden sent an invitation to Lath Fryland Orange Corps to come and spend the day with him at Sylvan Tullymore. We asked Aiken McClelland to what extent the support of Orangeism by the upper classes had varied through the years. In the early days, uh, shortly after the formation of the Orange Order, uh, the aristocracy took up Orangeism with enthusiasm. I think they looked upon it as a safeguard against the United Irishmen of 1798. Well, after the Order was banned, or rather dissolved at the request of King William IV in 1836, many of the aristocracy and landed gentry left the order, and when the order was revived in 1845, uh, they simply ignored it, with the notable exception of the Earl of Inniskillen and County Fermanagh. Well, then when home rule began to loom on the horizon <coughs> about 1880, the threat of home rule, I should say, uh, many of the aristocracy joined the order then and were prominent until about... Say ten years ago, 
has there been a change since then, do you think? Uh, there has. There have been quite a number of uh, prominent members of the landed gentry in aristocracy are no longer members of the order. Among people of influence and power who have been members of the Orange Order are most former ministers of state under the Stormont regime and all former prime ministers of Northern Ireland. Even the most liberal of the former premiers, Lord O'Neill, is still a member. So is James Chichester Clark. The fact that one is a member of the Orange Order doesn't make one necessarily some, uh, some sort of criminal. There are very fine people in the Orange Order, taken by and large, very liberal and straightforward, decent people, the right person they're proud and happy to be associated with. And it has become a sort of uh, thing of the times to write the orange order down, which is quite, 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 quite unfair. What we have got to recognize, though, is that the Roman Catholic population distrusts the orange order. Uh, we would like to see Roman Catholics join the Unionist Party provided always they would accept the constitutional position of this country. And therefore, we have got to knit the two together. As Mr Chichester Clark has said, Roman Catholics distrust the Orange Order. They see it as an organisation directed specifically against themselves and their religion, deciding in secret through its political ramifications who will get jobs or houses, any position of influence. In the courts, where so much of the northern situation is now reflected, who will be convicted or who set free. In short, a whole establishment of sectarianism and prejudice ranged against them. We asked the Reverend Martin Smith what he would say to people who felt like that. Well, I would say several things. First of all, there are many Roman Catholics in the north of Ireland who never have looked upon it in that light. Some people have spoken to me regularly and have expressed sympathy and support for what we've tried to do within the Orange family. Secondly, I would say, as you live your life, you judge your neighbour. And if you plot like that, you'll imagine all sorts of other folk are doing the same. Thirdly, coming back from America, we had the case of an inferiority complex where through a misunderstanding, a Scottish exile coming from America was given the same seat as a West Indian. And the West Indian immediately charged them for causing trouble. And I believe that there can be that aspect of it too. Basically, in an orange lodge, there is nothing said nor done within the terms of that meeting, which would be to the detriment of any individual. Well, this may be so, but uh, as I say, the, the Roman Catholic who thinks that a judge who may be trying him for some offence, and there are plenty of those here at the moment, may be a member of the, the Orange Order, or that all the jurymen, in fact, who are trying him may be members. Do you think that that person would be quite justified in, in thinking that he was going to get a fair trial? I think he would be justified in thinking that he was going to get a fair trial because he would have known that the calibre of these men is such that they can be trusted, that they do act fairly and impartially. We've got only to analyse the cases that have happened over the history. I mean, for example, there is the famous case of Gusty Spence, where people claim that he didn't get a fair trial, but yet he is branded as a militant Protestant. Yet it was a so-called militant Protestant court that convicted him. And I think myself that apart from those who have had their fears and suspicions fanned by politicians looking for their own interests, the average Roman Catholic knows from experience that in the north of Ireland he gets the same fair crack of the whip as his Protestant neighbour. Tony Gray at one point in his book refers to the Unionist Party as the political arm of the semi-secret Orange Order. But recent events, it seems, have given the Orange Order more than one political arm. Aiken McClelland. 
Well, looking at it historically, the Union, Ulster Unionist Party, or in the early days, I suppose, the Irish Unionist Party, was formed by the Grand Lodge of Ireland. So therefore, in that sense, it, it was, if you like, the political voice of the Orange Order. Uh, coming down to more recent times, uh, you have the position at the present time where the Orange Order is uh, allied, very, very closely allied with the Unionist Party, and yet many leading Orange men are no longer members of the Unionist Party. They're members of the uh, Democratic Unionists or the Vanguard Progressive Unionists, and in some cases even the Northern Ireland Labour Party. So mm -hmm. it would seem that uh, the Orange Order cannot back about four horses at once. W would you say it would be, be better for the Order itself to concentrate on purely religious matters? Well, many, many Orange men uh, believe that the Orange Order is a political organisation and disapprove on, if you like, on religious grounds, not political grounds, with this link. So, attitudes towards the association of the Orange Order with the Unionist Party may be changing. The attitude of many Northern Protestants towards the Order itself is certainly changing. Many prominent politicians, Unionist or ex-Unionist, have resigned from it. Many non-members, Protestants, resent the Orange Order speaking on their behalf, overstating a case which for them needs no such stridency and justification. A Tyrone doctor, for example, speaking a couple of years ago. I would certainly agree that uh, what is primarily a religious movement ought not to have any political influence. It ought not to have any influence on policy of the Unionist Party. Indeed, um, I would be a wholehearted member of the Unionist Party if it were not um, so closely linked with uh, the Orange Order. Um, on the other hand, it is fair to say that the ideals of the Orange Order are quite unexceptionable. Uh, it exists to defend the Protestant faith, which I think is well worthy of being defended. And uh, it has been more a corruption of the ideals of the Orange Order uh, which has brought it into disrepute. The evangelical self-righteousness of the Orange Order, its persistent antagonism to what it calls the encroachments of Rome, have surely contributed greatly to making the north of Ireland the sectarian hotbed it has been in the past and is today. Even the most tolerant Orange attitude to the alleged errors of Roman Catholicism seems to be expressed in a subtle metaphysical concept which may not always be appreciated in the remoter intellectual processes of the ordinary orange man. We hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Or, as the ballad has it, we hate them as masters, we love them as men. We put this point to Aiken McClelland. Yes, uh, this is true, but I think it's also true to say that in Northern Ireland, until a few years ago, and when I mention Northern Ireland, I don't really mean Belfast, but uh, you had... Uh, terrific friendliness between both sections of the community and I know myself I remember going to see the famous sham fight at Scarva on the 13th of July and a very large percentage of the, the crowd there who were there just for a day's enjoyment uh, were Roman Catholics and of course uh, many Roman Catholics went to Finnehy Field and elsewhere, I'd been there myself mm, true, and yes. uh, enjoyed it as a, as a pageant yes. but once any sort of uh, sectarian feeling comes up you know it seems to turn to, to hatred. 
and and the brotherly love seems to go out the door. <laughs> yes, this is true, but of course, I think you're probably assuming that all these uh, riots were caused by the orange men. Uh, this wouldn't be strictly true. Uh, Dolly's Bray, admittedly, the orange men uh, killed uh, eight of their opponents, but they didn't start it. A battle of Garva, the same thing. One man was killed, but uh, again, the orange men didn't start it. And uh, it may be, of course, that the orange men had come prepared, thinking there was going to be a fight and were better armed and so on. But at least they were—they weren't the aggressors. According to Patrick Buckland in Ulster Unionism, orange processions seem to have been the precipitating factor in at least six of Belfast's fifteen riots between 1813 and 1914. Their contribution to more recent disturbances is assessed in reports like that of the Scarman Tribunal in 1972, which has some harsh words to say about the behaviour of Dungiven Orange Lodge in particular in what it terms the inflamed conditions of 1969. It's part of the Orange tradition that a hard line should be followed on all matters of reform, what were seen as concessions to Rome. Any relaxation of penal laws against Catholics, Catholic emancipation, extension of the franchise right down to the issue of one man, one vote, and the support for extreme right-wing unionism in our own time. Aiken McClelland again. I, I would agree partly. You've got to remember, of course, that the leaders uh, of the Orange Order were always conservatives, using the word conservative with a small c. So if you like, they, they believed in the status quo. I think the most uh, unfortunate opposition to reform was just about 100 years ago when um, the Orange Order leadership opposed uh, the secret ballot of 1872. And another thing about them too, the, the, there was a sort of conditional loyalty. They, they maintained that they were in favour of the union and the link with the crown and so on and so forth, and yet many times there was the threat that if the crown or the government didn't do things their way that, well, they would kick the throne into the boyne or whatever it was. Mm, yes, but this is exactly the law of the land. Uh, the law of the land lays down that uh, the sovereign must be Protestant. So in saying that they would hold, uphold the monarchy if the sovereign is Protestant, they're doing exactly what the law said. Uh, you've got to remember, I th too, that the Orange Order has always been very, very careful to try and keep within the law. And this is why, for example, the Grand Lodge of Ireland dissolved in 1824 and dissolved in 1835. There was always this insistence by the leadership to, as far as possible, not break the law. And this is why, of course, you had the, the famous rouse in 1860 about the Party Processions Act, because the Grand Lodge said, the law says no party processions, therefore the orange men aren't to walk on the 12th of July. The Grand Master, however, does not see the order as an enemy of reform. No, I think this is completely wrong and a misstatement of it. There have been very famous uh, declarations even uh, of uh, Arrington Republican sources one particular grouping, of course, being the Macromorn Declaration, which was propounded by independent orange men. And again, we have got to bear in mind that at one stage the orange order was in the forefront for an Irish parliament in that particular context at that time. I think that you get different aspects of orangeism, and to suggest, for example, that the civil rights movement was opposed by the orange institution because the were against civil rights is a travesty of the truth. We did, and were the first to do, and consistently have done, unveil the civil rights movement for what it was and what 
we have discovered it to but be. Is, is a this cover not a for rationalization terrorism. on the part of the order of all these things that can rationalize this always afterwards? No, I don't think so. I think that you've got to look at our statements consistently right through. There's no evidence of rationalization. We pinpointed the involvement of the terrorists and the anarchists from the very beginning, and one cannot now say that uh, this is rationalization. If you look at my own little booklet of 1969 in defense of Ulster, I pinpoint these things as long ago as that. It's surely of some significance that the only example of orange radicalism cited by the Grand Master should be that of the breakaway independent Orange Order, which lasted effectively for only a few years at the beginning of this century, and which, in its abhorrence of Rome, yielded nothing to the parent body. As regards the Orange men who opposed the Act of Union, and who spoke of it as the extinction of the Irish nation, it must be remembered that they did so because they saw the Irish nation of 1800 as a Protestant nation, and the Irish Parliament as one which would continue to exclude the Catholic majority. But what of the Orange Order in the future? Is it, as its leaders have seen it, the last bastion of a northern state? Only the Orange Order remains in the minds and hearts of countless people in this community. It is not just an association of men joined together to maintain Protestantism in the life sphere. It has, in fact, become the last stronghold of Ulster. If it falls, it is no extravagance to say that our country is lost. It is therefore the symbol of Ulster's existence and a hope for our future, and this is hard as regarded by our fellow citizens who are not even within our ranks. However, many Protestants who are not within the ranks see the order in a different light. Dennis P. Barrett and Arthur Booth in a Quaker study of community relations in Northern Ireland published in 1972, speak of the prejudice and the obscurantism which seem to many to be sustained and perpetuated by the Orange Order. And they speculate as follows. It is not impossible that the Order, if successfully challenged by its more moderate and far-sighted members, could respond to its own stated aims and ideals, in which case it might have a useful part to play in a happier Northern Ireland. Some believe, however, that to imagine this is to misconceive utterly the true nature of the structure and purposes of the Orange Order, which, they say, already looks outdated and old-fashioned, and which can only become more cantankerous and evil while it loses evolutionary purpose and effectiveness and finishes up as Montezaurus-like relic of an incredible past. A brontosaurus, an anachronism, a backward-looking and reactionary institution serving no present-day need. We leave the final word to the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Ireland. I think that there is a greater need for it, because in an age of crumbling institutions, I do believe there's need for stability. And certainly, with so many Roman Catholics questioning their faith, I believe that there needs to be a strong Protestant witness to the truth of the Reformation, which we believe, based upon the timeless word of God, is timeless.